The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Today FM. It all happens here. Now, as I said earlier, the week trending has moved to this time each Friday and I'm delighted though that we have two old stalwarts of the week trending with us. Ro McDermott, who of course is movie editor with Hot Press and we heard doing movies last night with us. Also a relationships columnist with the Irish Times. And we also have Owen Tomás McDermott, MD of the Communications Clinic with us, uh, Unrelated McDermott's. So, let's start with sad news today, Ro, about Lisa Marie Presley dying at the age of 54, who I think it's fair to say had a tough enough life, didn't she? She did have a tough enough life. And I think, you know, she witnessed her, her father dying at quite a young age. She, she was, was only ma- nine, I think, wasn't really, she? Really, and she was in the room when he died. So really traumatic. And then was married to Michael Jackson and has said repeatedly that she kind of spent her marriage trying to save him and then had to watch what happened to Michael Jackson. And then only in the past couple of years, her son Benjamin died by suicide, which is really sad. And she actually wrote a really beautiful essay for National Su- Suicide Awareness Day or a National Grief day I think that was talking about grief and it was really beautiful she said one is that grief does not stop or go away in any sense a year or years after the loss grief is something you will have to carry with you for the rest of your life in spite of what certain people or our culture want us to believe you do not get over it you do not move on period and she wrote a really beautiful essay talking about particularly kind of the shame and stigma and silence that accompanies people whose children have died that people can't almost cope with it so she got, she found it very ostracising but I do want to mention like she her life was so plagued by tabloid press and all these stories about her and she had her own her own issues but I do I I just find it problematic that all of the headlines are kind of like tragic life because she had a beautiful life as well. Like she was so good to Elvis fans. She gave so much of herself, even though the press were so horrendous to us. And I think what's really beautiful is that this year she saw the release of the Elvis movie. She saw a new generation of people introduced to Elvis, people celebrating again. Only two nights ago, Austin Butler was on stage accepting the Golden Globe and said, I love you, Lisa Marie Presley, because he was so grateful to her. She also released her own music she was a mother so I do want people to remember the joyous parts of her life as well On Tomas well, I think Ro has said quite a lot I of think she has yeah. she nearly said it all there hasn't no, she? I was very much enjoying <laughs> listening to it because it did strike me as well that it is really a salutary lesson that uh, money and fame don't guarantee you happiness and certainly as we've heard from Ro and as we, we've discussed uh, from our vantage point or certainly my vantage point it didn't seem that Lisa Marie Presley had a particularly happy life or a life full of joy for all of the reasons Mm. that Roe has talked about a series of adverse childhood experiences losing her father at a very young age and everything that has been discussed so it is also though quite a shame that she died so young that's the thing that always strikes me now when we look at people uh, dying in their 50s that is very very Mm. young and again you would have thought that someone with her wealth could have afforded the best health care and that clearly uh, she she, she wasn't living as healthy a life perhaps as she could have been. Okay, well, in some respects, I think the Presleys almost became like American royalty of a kind, didn't they? Which brings us on to British royalty and Prince Harry and his book Spare. And as I mentioned last night, we did a, f- a review of it with Lee's Hand on Tuesday night's programme, which is available as a podcast if people want to listen to. Um, but the reaction to the book this week in Britain has been utterly extraordinary. So put on your headphones there, please, because we're going to play a little bit uh, of the reaction of, well, some of the UK media this week to it. There's one thing to do with this book. Uh, (laughs) Rather than buy it and feather his greedy little nest, 
Do what I'm going to do right now. Take spare and chuck it where it belongs in the bin. Judas Iscariot betrayed Jesus Christ for 30 pieces of silver. This bloke has betrayed the Queen, his brother, his father, the future Queen, the Queen for tens of millions of pounds. It's all about money. His sense of entitlement is staggering. Harry's a very, very stupid man, a man with a barely functioning IQ in the sort of middle 90s who in real life wouldn't be able to get a job or sort of have a family or do anything. It is ghastly at every level. Can you imagine trashing your own family, trashing your own country, trashing the Commonwealth, trashing your grandmother's legacy when she was the late Queen Elizabeth, and doing it all for money? I think the whole thing, frankly, is despicable. What gets me is that he's gone from a really likeable, almost relatable royal, you know, brave army soldier, to suddenly a whinging woke crybaby that every time he comes on, I just want to turn him off. I, I actually, it's quite a, uh, a, a strong word, but I think I hate, I hate Harry. I'm not suggesting he's as bad as Hitler, but it is like reading Mein Kampf in that Hitler thinks he's a great hero, and you put the book down with absolute disgust. And you do put this book down with total disgust. That was put together by the Joe website in the UK. The performative outrage there, Antimas, is something quite extraordinary, isn't it? There's the likes of Piers Morgan, Nigel Farage. There's historians in there. Nigel Farage giving out about thrashing your own country. Uh, Brexit, anyone? <laughs> well, there is there is certainly an element uh, where you would say there's hypocrisy there, Matt. And then you could say that if you weren't listening to the person who said it and listened to what they said, maybe there is at times an element of truth there. Yes, it is for money. That is why he did it. There is an element Sorry, where... do we know that it's Stephanie for money? Was it not actually perhaps... Bearing his soul and that. also that making people aware of what actually goes on within this You're family. You're both extraordinarily generous and much more generous than I. <laughs> I've read this book. I know, which is much more than I have, Matt. And I, what I what strikes me, though, having even not read the book, but more looked at the reaction of it, I suspect that Meghan and Harry view the last couple of months as the start of something, that they have their podcast, they did the Netflix documentary, and we have the book. Whereas, in fact, what I now begin to believe that this actually could be the end of something, that they have managed to have their moment in the sun, that they have managed to make as much money as they can. And unfortunately, that now this is going to slip away. There is a line, I don't know if did you ever see Zoolander, where <laughs> Will Ferrell's character says, Hansel, he's so hot right now. Well, before Christmas, <laughs> I would have said, Harry, he's so hot right now. Whereas, in fact, I think it's cooling. And I think it is cooling, given the reaction to it, because I would say the royal family themselves couldn't be happier that Will and Kate are looking at this saying, this actual book release could not have gone better for us. The reaction has You've been... You've got to be kidding. When you see what's written about them in this book... It but Matt, I'm not sure that many people are actually going to go that far into I'll reading I'll tell you this much. This book has been bought by over a million people in the States in its first day. 400,000 people in the UK. Many, many more will buy it and they will find it a very convincing read. And it will change maybe perhaps the attitudes that they've had about his sibling and about others in the royal family. But it's interesting, Matt, though, you see, this, well, on the point about the others in the royal family, after the Oprah interview, the whole narrative around it was that the royal family was racist. And that Piers Morgan, and I don't like necessarily agreeing with Piers Morgan as, a human, as an obnoxious human being, but Piers Morgan said, I do not believe that the royal family are racist. And it turned out he was right. Harry then said, no, 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 we didn't mean that. And you would, I 
think an interviewer, whether it was Anderson Cooper or Tom Bradley, should have said, why did you not clarify that? Also, another contradictory piece that we have seen is that Harry said that he was advised to be wary about marrying his wife. Yet, he advised his father not to marry his wife. Does he not see the contradiction Yeah, hold on a second. Camilla had been having an affair with Charles while his mother... (laughs) Come on now, Ro, your turn. Well, first of all, I just have to say, Prince Harry, Mein Kampf and Zoolander, this conversation (laughs) has everything. Um, I will say, Piers Morgan doesn't get to decide what's racist. That's just the be-all and end-all of that. I think think there's such an attack on Harry and Meghan in the UK press because they're threatened. They're like the press and the the royal family have had such a dysfunctional relationship for so long. The royals make so much money for the press um, that this is really threatening because if the monarchy is dismantled, that's a huge and it's also a huge criticism of the press and how they've treated the royal family, how they treated Meghan Markle, how racist they are, how misogynistic they are. That it is a huge threat. So the reaction feels like a reaction to that because so this react- is why they're kicking him all Absolutely. over the place. Because when you read through the book. It becomes yeah. quite clear about how traumatised and affected he was by the tabloid treatment of his mm-hmm. mother before she died. Also him being followed He's as a, a child. His, her death, then him yeah. being followed as a child, what was written about him as a teenager, as a young adult. Yes, mm-hmm. he did some things that were wrong, but were they in the public interest? The fact that he was been stalked by the paparazzi mm-hmm. and then relationships which failed because of the media attention and then what was done to Meghan Markle and whatever Absolutely. about the racism not been proven in relation to the royal family there are many articles that he quotes in the book written across the British media which quite quite clearly were racist. Absolutely racist and so the reaction is to Harry and Meghan as people because they don't want to react to these accusations of really dangerous systemic issues. He's a threat. I do want to acknowledge Meghan and Harry were part of the royal family. Like Meghan Markle married into the royal family. Harry was involved in the royal family. They didn't set out to dismantle the royal family until it stopped working for them. So I think we do have to acknowledge that. But then they became aware of these systemic issues and became aware of how intolerable they were. And now they're using their platform to speak out. And I actually think that's fine. And I think the backlash towards them is a reaction to them as people so we don't have to look at the wider systemic issues. And then the backlash on Tomas, which particularly amongst older people who write read the, the rags like the Daily Express and who believe all the nonsense they're told about terrible Harry. Himself and Meghan are more unpopular than Prince Andrew, the odious Prince mm. Andrew who used to hang out with the paedophile Jeffrey Epstein mm. who had to make a $16 million settlement less than a year ago to a woman who as a teenager says she sexually molested him. And somehow Prince Andrew is in higher standing with the British people than Prince Harry. And isn't getting any media coverage these days. No, it's grossly unfair. Like, in fairness, that is, that is grossly unfair in relation to that comparison. Um... And what strikes me and which has frustrated me is, as you speak about Roe, their royalness and their perhaps desire no longer to be royal because it hasn't worked for them. My view is that although they may not be royal anymore, they cannot stop monetizing their royalness. And that is the part that uh, is an element of frustration for me where I see that that, that at times can be contradictory and, and hi- um, hypocritical. Uh, but I do look at it in communication terms, Matt, and albeit that there may be a million uh, copies sold. I am interested, though, in the initial reaction to it. And I think perhaps what if people have read it like you have that over time that may change but they may not have necessarily that time and that initial reaction that has been the response to it may be the lasting one.
I think the money question is really interesting because I did watch the Netflix documentary and there was a really moving segment about Tyler Perry taking Harry and Meghan into their home and saying, you can hide out here, it's fine. Mm-hmm. And they didn't really know each other. Um, but Tyler Perry said, I saw what they did to Meghan and I also, my mother had been abused and I saw her being abused while I was growing up. That was an abused woman and this is what abusers do. And he was speaking specifically about the royals saying, we're going to cut you off financially and we're also going to cut off your security, which was huge for Harry and Meghan because everyone knew where they were and they were about to have a baby and Tyler Perry said that's what abusers do they say I'm going to cut you off financially I'm going to damage you financially and I'm going to make you feel unsafe and so even the idea of they're trying to monetize it now they have to pay for 24-7 security in the United States which is huge so there are real like I don't begrudge them needing to cover that No no but I have no problem with them making money it is though that then they, they given that they don't want to talk about they're uh, royal, given that they don't want to be royal, they can't stop talking about it. And also that they demand privacy. Well, Daniel Day-Lewis, for example, can get tons of privacy because he just doesn't turn up places. They yet themselves have a Netflix documentary, a podcast and now a book. And they ask for privacy, which is very, very difficult to achieve. No, no, no. Sorry, I disagree with you there. You Mm. can do a Netflix documentary, a book and all the rest of it and expect that people don't start poking cameras in through the hedges in your garden, trying to get photographs of you and your kids and all the rest of it. There is a line. And it's all regularly crossed by the British and American media. And I do think if there's a narrative created around you for years and years and years and you've forced, been forced to be silent about it, I think there's a very human desire to be understood and get your version of the story out there. So this idea that they can't stop monetizing it, we're actually only a couple of years out of them leaving the monarchy. So it's very recent history we're talking mm. about. And there's one just to finish before the break. Brian in Dublin says the UK press has never liked Harry, insinuating that he's a bastard for almost all of his life. And that's mm. something he addresses actually in the book and he points out very clearly that his mother didn't know James Hewitt until after he was born. So let's move on to have a break and come back with the week trending with Ro McDermott and Oz Tomas McDermott after this. Owen Tomas McDermott and Ro McDermott are with us for the week trending. Just a quick one, if you could fill us in, Ro. What's happening with Kevin Spacey and his legal action today? Yeah, so he's been kind of keeping a low profile since this string of sexual misconduct accusations brought against him and kind of derailed his career in 2017. Now, there was a... uh, a, a case in the States uh, brought by Anthony Rapp and it was a civil case and it was worth $40 million uh, where Anthony Rapp accused him of sexual misconduct and the jury concluded that Spacey did not, uh, was not guilty. But now there's allegations that have come out. It was from a period of 2001 to 2004 and he's been accused of um, molesting and assaulting um, one man and there are separate charges then of from three other men and this was around the time that he was the director of the Old Vic in London. But what is bizarre is that he made a video appearance in court uh, but on Monday he's set to be honoured at a very special event by Italy's National Cinema and he's holding a public masterclass, he's getting a Lifetime Achievement Award, he's presenting a special screening of Sam Mendes' American Beauty. So it is this very odd uh, point in his career where some people are clearly embracing him back into the fold and celebrating his work while he is still facing these charges. So a very odd time. Okay, let's move on to other things. Actually, let's hear a little bit of the Golden Globes this week. Earlier, Ro, you were with us earlier in the week when we heard a little bit of Colin Farrell's acceptance speech. But let's get away from the Banshees of Inish Aaron and a couple of the other major stars who won awards and talk a little bit about Jennifer Coolidge and uh, Kay We Won. And let's hear them accepting their Golden Globe awards. I just want you all to know that I had such big 
dreams and expectations as a younger person. But what happened was they, you know, they get sort of fizzled by life or whatever. And, and you know, I thought I was going to be queen of Monaco, even though someone else did it. Mike White, you have given me hope for just, you've given me a new beginning. Even this is the end, because you did kill me off, but it doesn't matter because <laughs> even if this is the end, you sort of changed my life in a million different ways. And my neighbors are speaking to me, things like that. And, and no, I mean it. None of those people. I was never invited to one party on my hill, and now everyone's inviting me. When I started my career as a child actor in Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, I felt, I felt so very lucky to have been chosen. As I grew older, I started to wonder if that was it, if, if that was just luck. For so many years, I was afraid that I had nothing more to offer. Uh, that no matter what I did, I would, I would never surpass what I achieved as a kid. Thankfully, more than 30 years later, two guys thought of me. They remembered that kid. And they gave me an opportunity to try again. <laughs> Okay, that's from the Golden Globes. Jennifer Coolidge, who we heard first, is the star of The White Lotus. Have you seen it yet all? No, I haven't seen it yet, Matt. It's um, well worth watching. I, I, so do you know I, what we're talking I, about? I do hey? indeed, Matt. I grew up in the, as a teenager in the noughties, so American Pie would have been a, a favourite. Stifler's mom. And I, I, I knew her as Stifler's mom. <laughs> okay. She is, seems to be one of the most loved characters in American oh. television, globally now as a result. So she? good, because for those who haven't watched The White Lotus, first of all what are you doing with your lives and she was so great in season one and then was back for season two I was just so beloved and so perfect in the role and what I love about both of these stories is I am doing a list for Hot Press and it's people to creative people to watch in 2023 and I was doing an interview with a brilliant creative person and at the end of the interview they said this isn't like I'm 34 is that okay because they thought I was doing a 30 under 30 list and I was like absolutely not like we need to celebrate people of all ages and particularly people who start later or get you know a rejuvenated career later in life um, and that's what I love about this so much Jennifer Coolidge who by the way was absolutely sloshed at the Golden Globes and spent 12, 12 minutes speaking in total which I think is possibly more than the host um, but she said that she'd been ignored for so long and that this has really reignited her career and she was just so happy but also Kei Hui Kwan who won for Everything Everywhere All at Once which was one of my favourite movies of the year his speech was so moving uh, known of course for Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom also appeared in Goonies but he's also only the second Asian actor to win the Golden Globe for Supporting Actor Best Supporting Actor and I just think it's so moving to see these actors who have been working for so long but have gone unrecognised get this new start in their career and are so grateful for it and we see people who have been working and successful for so long who are so jaded there's none of that with these two so I couldn't be more delighted Let's move on uh, Antomas, can you tell me about the story of Charles Byrne? Oh, I can indeed, Matt. Uh, whose skeleton is to be removed from public display at a museum in London. Yeah, uh, the Hunterian Museum in London, to be specific, Matt. Charles Byrne 
uh, is a Tyrone man or was a Tyrone man from the who died in the 18th century in 1783, uh, about 240 years ago. Uh, he was a giant, seven foot six. And it's really a very interesting story of how he ended up ultimately in the Hunterian Museum. He was a kind of a, a spectacle, something to go see, given his, his size. And he caught the attention of an anatomist and surgeon, a chap called John Hunter. And it turns out John Hunter wanted to buy Burns's body when he died. Uh, Charles Byrne didn't want his body to be sold and so had made arrangements that when he would die he would be buried in a lead coffin and put on a boat in Margate brought out to sea and buried at sea that was what he wanted that was what his wishes were it turned out that on the way to Margate something happened and that en route there the cadaver was snatched body snatched body snatched and whether Hunter himself was involved but Hunter John Hunter uh, ended up with the body which he then did a whole series of scientific uh, examinations on and the skeleton then appeared in the Hunterian Museum where it was for over 200 years. Uh, it has it has been taken down and isn't going to be put back up for public observation but apparently is still going to be available for scientific uh, experiments or scientific research. But it strikes me as a, an incredibly actually sad story that somebody's body ends up being a relic particularly when they had expressed that that was not what they wanted it to be. Yeah, I think the only possible upside of this story is Brendan Holland, who's actually a distant relative of Charles Burton, who has the same condition that Charles had, said that he was in favour of the skeleton continuing to be used for medical research. And he said, we can't do anything for dead people, but we can help those who are alive and have this condition, uh, which I thought was an interesting take on it. But I do think you're right, Owen. It does get, of course, ethically dodgy when someone's wishes are being completely ignored. Yeah, it reminded me, do you remember the bare-knuckle boxer whose arm travelled around Ireland? Do you remember this? No. It was, it was a bare-knuckle boxer God, called, Dan, such a weird called Dan Donnelly in the 1800s. Fascinating. And a grave snatchers uh, took his arm because he was such a famous bare knuckle boxer. And it was ended up in a pub in Kilcullen back in the 1950s until people discovered it. And then it travelled around America. And then back in the, I think, 2006, 2008, it ended up being um, shown in the museum in Crow Park. And you would think, how does something like that happen? So we're seeing that there are these unusual relics. And then, of course, you have a whole series. Religious relics get transported around the country from church to church. And then you have a whole series of questionable artefacts and and things with disputed ownerships in museums all around uh, Europe and most colonial uh, countries. Mm. Um, So you can see that there are certainly interesting things that we can go see perhaps over the weekend. Okay, so, Ro, why are Italy's farmers upset with Ireland's public health approach to their wine. Oh, they're very annoyed. Uh, So there are new regulations coming in that said that Ireland will have three years to introduce labels that will warn of the link between alcohol consumption and liver disease and fatal cancers. And the labels will also warn against consuming alcohol while pregnant and will carry details of official public health information on alcohol consumption. So kind of treating the labels on alcohol like we have done with smoking in a slightly lower key way, but kind of pointing out things that are common knowledge. The Italians are furious about this. They think this is going to affect and they said it was a da- set a dangerous precedent that risks opening the door to alarmist and unjustified legislation capable of negatively influencing consumer choices. They're very annoyed for something that seems very common sense and that we've seen in so many other products and frameworks. Like we don't let we don't advertise sugary cereals to kids anymore. You know, like put toys in in cereals anymore to in case they entice children. Like we're taking so much legislation that 
trying to be more responsible, warning people of the very, very real and proven side effects of alcohol consumption seems very basic. Totally. And I think that anything is damaging to your, your health. You should be informed as such. And that is what it would appear that these labels have. Like the HRB released a, a report a year or so ago. It was 2018 and 2019 data, but like it's, it's quite staggering. That for example, in 2019, oh, the average over 15, a note over 15, drinks the equivalent of 40 bottles of vodka a year or 113 the equivalent of 113 bottles of wine or the equivalent of 456 pints. Now, that's the average. We must remember that one in four people in Ireland doesn't drink. So that actually means that that stat is actually much higher. But also when we look at particularly the stress that is on our health system, that not only would kind of reducing the quantities of alcohol that we consume uh, help our own health, it would help the system. So, for example, the HRB also looked at uh, comparing 1995's data with 2018's data. And for instance, the amount of people discharged with um, alcohol-related illnesses in 1995 from hospitals was 9,000. In 2018, it was 18,000, so it's doubled. If you look at another metric in terms of length of stay, for example, in 1995, related to alcohol, there were six days was the average. In 2018, it was 10 days. So those are, we're starting to see... Although they may be age-related because I think it's fair to say that uh, the amount of alcohol consumption has fallen by about 20% in this country since the turn of the century per head. Yeah, but then they looked at it, Matt, though, in particular to uh, binge drinking and then also drinking during uh, the pandemic. And they believe that the increases, that has increased there. So look, when okay. we look at the Italians getting reared up, yes, you can see that representative bodies have to do it. But when you see it impacting our health, we have to be known. We have to finish there. On Tomas McDermott from the Communications Clinic and Ron McDermott from Hot Press in the Irish Times. Thank you both so much for being with us here on The Week Trending. The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Today FM. It all happens here.